This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode features discussions of mental illness, violent crime, and terrorism that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. In March of 1994, 37-year-old government analyst Ana Belen Montez walked into an office in the Defense Intelligence Agency to take a polygraph exam. This wasn't just a routine test. A few weeks earlier, the intelligence community was rocked to the core when a longtime CIA employee was arrested for espionage. Now, agencies across the board were on a mission to root out other traitors in their ranks. And after nine years of spying for Cuban intelligence, Ana Montes was exactly the type of person they were looking for. Her only hope of convincing the U.S. of her loyalty was to outwit the polygraph. Sitting down by the machine, Anna slipped her arm into a blood pressure cuff. She waited patiently as rubber tubes were strapped around her chest with electric sensors to monitor her breathing and heart rate. Finally, the examination began. At first, the interviewer asked questions with obvious answers, like, do you work for the DIA? But as the test continued, the examiner delved deeper into Anna's past. This was a counterintelligence investigation, so the agency needed to know what Anna believed, where she traveled, and most importantly, if she'd ever lied to them. It took all her mental strength to remain calm and detached. If she passed the exam, she'd be free to continue her work as a double agent. If not, she would be outed as an international spy, imprisoned, and possibly executed. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? 
We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we saw how growing up in an abusive household made Ana Montez resentful of authority. She resolved to do everything she could to protect the oppressed, even if that meant committing treason. This week, we'll see how Anna embarked on dual careers as an undercover Cuban intelligence agent and a superstar analyst in the U.S. Department of Defense. We'll discuss how Anna's own sister secured key evidence that eventually put the FBI on her trail. As investigators closed in, Anna had to decide whether to run or to go down fighting. Anna Belen Montez began her career with the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA, on September 30, 1985. She was hired as a researcher, just as she had in previous occupations. The 28-year-old quickly impressed her superiors. Within months, she was promoted to intelligence analyst, specializing in El Salvador and Nicaragua. In this position, Ana reviewed information about these countries from field agents, law enforcement, and other sources. She would then make recommendations to policymakers and military officials, based on her analysis of the intelligence. The work itself was mentally demanding. Attempting to spy for the Cubans on top of it was extremely risky. If Anna was caught, she could be arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit espionage or even treason. But the 28-year-old didn't hesitate to dive in. She was convinced that with organization and discipline, she'd be able to handle it. Anna started her double life by establishing a routine, one that she followed religiously for the next 16 years. On a typical day, she woke up early and commuted from her two-bedroom co-op in the Cleveland Park neighborhood of Washington, D.C., to her office at the DIA. She arrived in her cubicle at 8 a.m., sat down, and immediately went to work. She spent the next several hours analyzing data, writing reports, and attending meetings. Then she broke for a quick lunch. Usually she grabbed a salad or soup from the office cafeteria and took it back to her cubicle. There she kept working until around 5 p.m., at which point she went home, rarely stopping to chat with anyone on her way out. Anna's machine-like habits and apparent disinterest in socializing soon made an impression on her colleagues. 
Some thought she was just too focused on work to think about anything else. Others considered her arrogant and standoffish. But there was more going on beneath the surface than Anna's new co-workers realized. She'd been dedicated to working hard her entire life, yet she'd also found time in the past to make friends. Now, she couldn't do that without putting her mission or herself at risk. Before we delve into Anna's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. In an article on the mental impacts of undercover operations, psychologist Dr. Lawrence Miller noted, double agents knowingly and purposefully develop relationships that they will eventually betray. Many officers find this a difficult road to walk adding to the stressors of undercover work. Miller's comments were about agents working on the right side of the law, but it's likely that Anna experienced similar inner conflicts. She may have decided to cut people out of her life simply to reduce the anxiety of having to lie to those she cared about. At the very least, having no social life helped Anna perform her secret job without interruptions. Each night, when she got home from work, she retyped the classified documents she'd memorized in the office that day on a computer provided by Cuban intelligence. She then saved the files on floppy disks, which could be easily slipped into her tote bag and delivered to her handlers later. Once she was finished with the documents, Anna turned on a shortwave radio she'd purchased at a local electronics store. She tuned the radio to AM frequency 7887 kilohertz and waited. At first, she got nothing but static. Then, in the middle of the night, when most of the city was asleep, Anna heard a woman's voice fade in. The speaker rattled off a list of 150 apparently random numbers, which Anna promptly keyed into her computer. Once the transmission ended, Anna ran a pre-installed decryption program. In a flash, the sequence was converted into a secret message just for her. This made all the intervening hours of loneliness worthwhile. Although Cuban intelligence didn't pay Anna for her services, they made her feel important. They allowed her to choose what information to give them, as well as when and where she'd deliver it. Most importantly, they treated her like a valued member of the team. For Anna, who grew up in a home where her father's word was law, being part of a collaborative effort was highly gratifying. And according to psychologist Ursula M. Wilder, that may have been exactly what her handlers intended. In her essay, The Psychology of Espionage, Dr. Wilder states that spy recruiters are trained to see weakness in people who have access to valuable information. She explained, agents spotting a vulnerable person may insinuate themselves into the situation and exacerbate the personal crisis. Handlers will then continue to manipulate a recruited asset's vulnerabilities to maintain the person's long-term engagement in espionage. Intentionally or not, the Cubans' encouragement gave Anna the inspiration she needed to accomplish extremely difficult things. 
From 1986 to 1989, the young analyst was promoted half a dozen times. She received multiple awards for her distinguished service and was entrusted with more and more complex jobs. Colleagues and supervisors throughout the intelligence community regarded her as a leading expert in Latin American political affairs. In her secret life, Anna was also highly regarded. But due to the covert nature of her work, it's hard to say exactly what she accomplished as a spy. However, a development in Nicaragua during her fifth year in action suggests a clue. Anna's primary goal was always to help the Nicaraguan people control their own destiny. In 1990, the nation democratically elected a new president, apparently without influence from the U.S. We don't know for sure if the information that Anna provided helped bring about this long-awaited change, but we do know it brought the country's civil war to an end, leaving 33-year-old Anna at a major crossroads. Her mission, as she knew it, was now over, and that meant she had a choice to make. She could either go straight, putting an end to this risky detour in her career, or she could find a new objective, thereby recommitting herself to a life of crime. For some, this might have been a tough decision, but Anna barely even hesitated. She knew the U.S. had political objectives for Cuba and considered them a threat to the island's sovereignty. Just like she had for Nicaragua, Anna now dedicated her life to protecting the smaller country from its bullying northern neighbor. In 1992, 35-year-old Anna was accepted to a program that allowed her to study a project of her choice on the government's dime. She used it as an opportunity to travel legally to Cuba. She spent 12 months in the nation she was secretly working for on the side. In February of 1993, her new expertise earned her yet another promotion to the head of the DIA's Cuban account. In this position, Montez yielded tremendous influence over U.S. policy toward the island. She also met the man who would ultimately take her down. Coming up... A fellow analyst's hunch leads to suspicions that Anna is working for the enemy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Thank you so much for listening. We want to take this time to tell you that Female Criminals will be taking the next two weeks off. We'll be back with a brand new episode on January 8th. In the meantime, we do have a special gift to share with you. While we're away, we'll be airing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. If you'd like to check out the most requested episodes from ParCast's other shows, subscribe to ParCast Presents to hear our best of 2019. 
from everyone here at Parcast, we'd like to wish you a happy holiday season. We're thankful for your support and look forward to bringing you even more unique and entertaining podcasts in the new year. Thanks for listening. Now back to the story. In February of 1993, 36-year-old Ana Belen Montes was promoted as the DIA's top political and military analyst on Cuba. As the newly crowned expert, the so-called Queen of Cuba had access to nearly every discussion about the island in the entire Department of Defense. She could attend almost any meeting and read any classified documents she liked. She was also in charge of briefing top U.S. officials. This meant she had tremendous influence over the chain of information. By carefully selecting what intelligence was shared with American decision makers, she could shape their understanding of the island to Cuba's benefit. For a while, it was the perfect setup. But a year into her new role, Anna got word of an arrest that threatened everything. On February 21, 1994, a 30-year veteran of the CIA named Aldrich Ames was arrested. He was charged with spying for the Russians for nearly a decade. The intelligence community was stunned. Agencies across the board instituted new security measures. At the DIA, this included immediate, mandatory polygraphs. Anna was taught how to beat a lie detector during her initial training in 1985, but she'd never actually had to take one, and now she was forced to do so in the wake of another spy's arrest. The interviewer was looking for people engaged in the very crimes Anna had been committing for almost a decade. She needed to talk to her handlers, but she couldn't just call them up from the office. Instead, she had to use a complicated system to notify the Cubans under the radar. First, she went to a certain payphone and called one of her handler's pagers. Then, instead of entering a callback number, she keyed in a code representing a message. For example, 911 could mean emergency. Another series of numbers was a request to meet. Once she sent the message, Anna then traveled to a different payphone in another area of Washington, D.C. There, she awaited a call with her handler's response. When the phone rang, Anna picked up the extension. No one spoke on the other end. Instead, they dialed numbers, which Anna wrote down on a slip of paper. She then used a simple decoder that she carried in her tote bag to interpret the message. In this way, the spy and the Cubans could arrange a meeting, which Anna would later attend wearing a wig as a disguise. These rendezvous normally took place once every two weeks, so there's a good chance that Anna attended one just prior to her polygraph exam. And if so, something in their discussion almost certainly helped the analyst prepare for her day of reckoning. In March of 1994, 37-year-old Ana Montes walked confidently into the examiner's office to take the test. Any hint of discomfort could lead to her termination, arrest, or even execution for treason. Yet she managed to answer the interviewer's questions calmly, 
Knowing she was lying the whole time, she passed. This was both a relief and a lucky break for the analyst. The results of the polygraph went on her permanent record, which meant that Anna now had the agency's lasting stamp of approval. Ironically, the exam designed to catch a spy had the opposite effect of covering many of Anna's future crimes. Although she managed to fool a machine, however, Anna failed to convince a certain colleague of her innocence. A veteran counterintelligence specialist named Reg Brown had been watching Anna since her promotion in 1992, and something about the Queen of Cuba rubbed him wrong. For one thing, he found her excessively eager. He noticed Anna showed up at meetings whenever Cuba was on the agenda, whether she was invited or not. She always justified her presence by saying she wanted to know as much about the country as possible, but her insistence on slipping behind every closed door concerned Reg. Then, in 1996, a catastrophe raised his suspicions even more. Throughout the 1990s, refugees fled harsh conditions in Cuba on rafts in hopes of drifting 80 miles across the ocean to Miami. Some made the perilous journey successfully, but the vast majority did not. Tens of thousands went adrift in the Florida Straits. Because they were undocumented, there are no definitive records of how many refugees went missing but dozens are known to have died of thirst, drowning, or exposure. In response to this humanitarian crisis, a nonprofit organization called Brothers to the Rescue started conducting aerial search parties. Their goal was to find refugees who had gone astray and alert the Coast Guard to save lives. Everyone agreed that this was a noble endeavor, but the pilots had a political motive as well. They wanted the Cubans to overthrow their communist leader, Fidel Castro, in a nonviolent revolution. And to that end, they dropped thousands of political leaflets onto the island during their flyovers, encouraging citizens to rise up against the regime. Castro was incensed by this blatant affront to his authority. His administration warned brothers to the rescue to stop dropping propaganda or risk being fired on. But the organization continued, and on February 24, 1996, the Cubans followed through on their threat, shooting down two brothers' aircraft and killing all four American nationals aboard. The U.S. was outraged. Many Cuban-Americans decried the attack as an act of war against the United States. President Bill Clinton called urgent meetings at the Pentagon to determine the best response. Ana Montes was the reigning intelligence expert on Cuba, so naturally she was expected to be in attendance. But the sudden uproar threw her off balance. She didn't have time to make plans with her handlers, Instead, she had to improvise, steering U.S. officials away from actions that might hurt her Cuban friends. It was an incredibly stressful day. 
Anna attempted to keep up with the frantic pace of unfolding events, but she soon grew frazzled and exhausted. And that evening, something happened that put her even more on edge. Around 6 p.m. on the 24th, Anna received a call on her personal cell while still at the office. No one ever learned who it was or what was so urgent that the analyst dared to answer it in such a critical moment. But some of her colleagues noticed afterward that Anna was strangely anxious. They heard her announce multiple times that she absolutely must leave by 8 o'clock. And despite the gravity of the circumstances, she did. To counterintelligence specialist Reg Brown, this was utterly shocking. The attack on the Brothers to the Rescue plane was one of the most critical moments of both his and Anna's careers. United States civilians had been murdered, and the Queen of Cuba just walked out. It was beyond comprehension, unless his hunch about the analyst was accurate, and Anna was indeed a Cuban spy. Reg theorized that the call Anna received that night was from her handlers. Cuban intelligence was probably frantic to know if the U.S. planned to take military action. Anna couldn't take the risk of talking to them at work, but she had to get them the information they needed, so she left. As it turned out, the U.S. decided against military reprisal. So if Anna did meet with the Cubans that night, she didn't have much to tell them. Even so, Reg was convinced that the analyst would continue providing their enemies with top-secret information unless he did something to stop her. In April of 1996, Reg relayed his suspicions about Anna to Scott Carmichael, a friend at the DIA who specialized in counterintelligence investigations. Scott heard Reg's concerns, but felt that his friend was mistaken. Anna Montez's record at the agency was absolutely stellar. More importantly, she'd passed a polygraph exam only two years before. Nevertheless, Scott knew better than to blow off a tip he promised Reg to look into the situation. After a few months of observing her from a distance, Scott decided that he and Ana Montez needed to talk. The 39-year-old Queen of Cuba got the call on November 1, 1996. Hearing an investigator on the line, she initially assumed Scott was calling to update her security clearance, but Scott quickly set her straight. He said there was an issue they needed to discuss and asked her to meet him in his office, alone. Once again, Anna found herself in the hot seat, with her mind racing, trying to anticipate every possible scenario. She went to Scott's office on November 7, 1996, explaining that she was swamped with work. Anna asked him to keep the interview short and to the point. Scott pleasantly obliged. After introducing himself formally as a counterintelligence investigator, he informed Anna that he suspected her of being a Cuban spy. Anna was stunned, but with masterful control, she managed to avoid showing any emotion. 
Instead, she settled in and prepared to respond to Scott's questions, just as she had those of the polygraph examiner two years before. As Scott grilled Anna about the Brothers to the Rescue incident, she remained calm and compliant. She couldn't tell him who had called that night because, as far as she remembered, no one had. Nor had she announced to anyone that she was leaving early. She was tired and felt the situation was under control, so she had simply decided to go home. Scott also questioned Anna on her personal contacts and her feelings about U.S. policy in Cuba. The analyst had a clear and logical answer for everything. Finally, after about an hour, the investigator decided to let her go. Once again, Ana Montez walked out of the DIA office unscathed, but this time she didn't bounce back so quickly. Over the next several months, she felt abnormally anxious. She had trouble sleeping and sometimes started crying for no apparent reason. Clearly, her double life was beginning to take its toll. According to psychiatrist Daniel K. Hall-Flavin, chronic stress can increase the risk of developing depression. It can cause fatigue, sleeping problems, and trouble in relationships. For Anna, personal relationships had long taken a backseat to her dual careers as an analyst and a spy. But as she approached her 40th birthday in 1997, under the cloud of depression, she wondered if she'd made the right choice. Sadly for Anna, her isolation was only going to get worse. And in an ironic twist, this was due in part to another rising star in the intelligence community, her younger sister, Lucy. Lucy had been working as a language specialist for the FBI in Miami for almost a decade. And in 1998, when the field office opened a serious investigation into a suspected spy network, they brought Lucy in to help. The subjects of the inquiry were a group of Cuban expats known as the WASP Network. As a language analyst, Lucy was in charge of listening to and transcribing hours of wiretapped conversations between the WASPs. Thanks in part to her work, on September 12, 1998, all known members of the WASP network were arrested. It was a crowning moment in Lucy's career, but for Anna, seeing her Cuban comrades face prosecution was devastating. It was also a precursor to further isolation, as her handlers, the only people with whom she could speak freely about her double life, went underground. Months passed without any communication. Without a mission to keep her spirits up, Anna fell even deeper into depression. She developed panic attacks. She tried seeing a counselor and taking medication, but nothing seemed to help. As time went on, Anna began showing signs of obsessive compulsion. She started taking extremely long showers, washing herself multiple times with several different soaps. This was a specific kind of OCD called mental contamination. According to Medical News Today, mental contamination is the feeling of being dirty after being mistreated or put down. A person with this form of OCD will try to scrub away the feeling by showering and washing excessively. 
After risking her life for over a decade to help the Cubans, Anna may well have felt put down or mistreated when they halted communication. So it's possible that the stress of being cut off actually triggered her OCD condition. In any event, it compelled Anna to make a change in her behavior. In late 1998, after several months of silence from her handlers, she took the uncharacteristic step of having a conversation with her co-workers. She confided that she was considering leaving the DIA and getting a job in the private sector, maybe in a think tank, where she could put her expertise to different use. Perhaps after all these years of leading a double life, she was ready to settle down. But then, one night, the Cubans reached out again, and in a flash, Anna gave up all thoughts of going straight. This was her life, her passion, her crusade. After 13 years of dedicated work, she was at the height of her criminal powers. Unfortunately for Anna, her comrades at arms were not, and their failure to protect her would lead to her downfall. Coming up, we'll see how a critical oversight by Cuban intelligence gave U.S. investigators the lead they needed to take down Ana Montez at last. Now back to the story. For more than a decade, Ana Belen Montez outwitted all efforts to curtail her criminal activity as a Cuban double agent. And by the end of 1998, the 41-year-old seemed set to continue spying for years to come. But unknown to Ana, her downfall was already in motion. It had started with the breakup of the WASP network a few months earlier, thanks in part to the efforts of her sister, Lucy Montez, FBI officials confiscated phones, laptops, and other materials belonging to more than a dozen Cuban spies. Among the paraphernalia, they found pre-installed decryption programs like the one Anna had been using for years. Cuban intelligence certainly knew about the arrests, and they probably should have updated their codes and decryption methods in response. But for whatever reason, they didn't. Instead, they kept using the same system that was now in the hands of the FBI. And as a result, the agency was now able to interpret secret messages from Castro's government to its agents all across the U.S. By the year 2000, the FBI had figured out the Cubans had a mole in the U.S. government, and thanks to the decrypted messages, they had a few details about this person's identity. They knew the double agent was a high-ranking official in intelligence. They also knew of this person's travel history, and they suspected that he or she had a computer like the ones used by the WASP network. This admittedly wasn't much to go on, but for DIA counterintelligence investigator Scott Carmichael, it was enough. By now, four years had passed since he'd accused Anna of being a spy. The moment her name popped up as a potential double agent suspect, he was convinced he'd been right all along. 
On November 27, 2000, Scott requested permission to launch a full investigation into Ana Montez in coordination with the FBI. This would be a long and delicate process, but Scott was determined to see it through. The Queen of Cuba would not escape him this time. As Scott and the FBI launched their investigation, Anna was preparing to embark on her next professional journey as well. She had just been accepted to a prestigious research fellowship at the National Intelligence Council, located at CIA headquarters in Washington, D.C. In this position, she would have access to more classified information than ever before. As soon as Scott heard the news of Anna's pending job change, his sense of urgency spiked. Not only was he worried about the secrets she might share with the Cubans, but he also feared that if she left the DIA, the investigation might be dropped. Scott's authority only extended to agency employees. He had to delay her reassignment long enough to get the evidence the FBI needed to open a broad-scale investigation. Scott coordinated with his team and a few select higher-ups to devise various pretexts for putting off Anna's start date. Anna, frustrated but not yet suspicious, went back to life as usual. She stuck to her schedule at work and home. Investigators tailed her for months without seeing a thing. Even a thorough search of her apartment turned up no incriminating evidence. The Queen of Cuba was so good at covering her tracks that after nine months of investigation, Scott began to wonder if he'd made a mistake. But his team had one play left. Anna had a tote bag that she carried with her everywhere. Maybe the reason why she kept it so close was that it contained her spycraft materials. That seemed like a long shot, but after almost a year of fruitless investigation, it was all Scott and his team members had left. On August 16, 2001, 44-year-old Anna entered her cubicle at 8 a.m., just like always. She placed her tote bag on the corner of her desk like usual. Then at 10 a.m., some supervisors called her into a conference room. While they kept her occupied, Scott and a few others slipped into Anna's cubicle and conducted a quick and stealthy search. They found a single slip of paper with handwritten codes that Anna used to send messages by payphone. It wasn't much, but it was enough. Using the decryption software the FBI had confiscated from the WASP network, investigators decoded the numbers and determined that Anna was definitely working with the Cubans. Scott was exultant, but he still wasn't satisfied. He now knew that Anna had been betraying her country for years. He wanted to prove exactly what services she provided to the Cubans. The only way to do that was to allow Anna to continue spying until they managed to catch her in the act. With this plan in mind, Scott had his team put everything back right where they found it, so when Anna returned to her cubicle, she saw nothing amiss. She simply carried on with her day and went home at the usual time. 
In other circumstances, Anna might have continued her undercover work for months or even years before Scott's team made their final move. But September 11th, 2001, changed the trajectory of her and many other Americans' lives forever. The 9-11 terrorist attacks were a shock to the world and perhaps above all, to the intelligence community who couldn't believe they didn't see it coming. Scott Carmichael saw the smoke from his lower floor office at the DIA that morning, but Anna had a better view. From the top story of the building, she saw dark clouds billowing from the Pentagon. And from her years of experience, she probably knew this didn't bode well for her. The attack represented a horrific failure on the part of the intelligence community. Agencies would soon be cracking down, which meant Anna would be in investigators' sights yet again. Perhaps that's why she went on alert. Within the next few days, she suspected that she was being followed. She wasn't sure by whom, but she sensed it was only a matter of time before they made their move. As the smoke cleared and the U.S. prepared for war, Anna was once again faced with a decision. She could flee, use her fake passports to make her way into Cuba to safety among her friends. Or she could stay and keep fighting for the cause she'd chosen 10 years ago, even at the cost of her own life. The mere fact that she considered continuing under these circumstances suggests that Anna may have suffered from a martyr complex. According to psychologist Dr. Ursula Sandner, martyrs are typically willing to sacrifice anything for others. They tend to feel that if no one needs them, they have no value. And they often exaggerate their importance in group efforts, believing that if they were to stop participating, the endeavor would fall apart. Given these qualities and her past behavior, it's not surprising that Anna decided to stay. She later said she didn't want to give up on the people she was helping, but chances are she couldn't bear to think they might be all right without her. On September 21, 2001, Anna arrived at her office and started work as usual, but at 10.15 a.m., she got a call from a supervisor saying that there was a problem with one of her subordinates. He didn't have time to deal with it, so he needed Anna to come down to the office and take care of it for him. Anna readily complied. When she reached the office, however, she didn't find a beleaguered colleague. Instead, she found two members of Scott Carmichael's investigative team. She was under arrest. Like always, Anna kept her cool. She claimed her right to remain silent and asked for legal counsel. A female officer searched her, and then the team led her out of the building in handcuffs. Anna was so quiet that most of her colleagues didn't even look up as she went by. Word of the arrest got out soon enough. Within a few months, Cuban officials began to acknowledge the loss of one of their greatest intelligence assets. Although Fidel Castro himself made no public comments, Foreign Minister Felipe Perez Roque wrote in an email, 
I feel deep respect and admiration for Ana Belen Montez. She acted compelled by ethics and an admirable sense of justice. In the United States, however, many of those who knew Ana were devastated. Her co-workers were shocked to learn that the DIA star was actually a hardened criminal. Her siblings, Lucy and Tito, were humiliated by the revelation that their own sister was a traitor. They feared they'd lose their jobs at the FBI. Fortunately, this didn't happen. But to Anna, it didn't seem to matter either way. She didn't apologize for her actions, nor did she feign innocence. She simply set about handling her arrest with the same precision as her double life. She hired the same top-notch attorney who had defended CIA spy Aldrich Ames 15 years before. The lawyer worked out a deal. Anna would plead guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit espionage and serve a 25-year sentence. In the fall of 2002, the 45-year-old Queen of Cuba was officially deposed. But in her sentencing on October 16th, Anna spoke defiantly in defense of her crimes. She said, I engaged in the activity that brought me before you because I obeyed my conscience rather than the law. I did what I thought right to counter a grave injustice. In the eyes of many, this is exactly what makes Ana Montez such a dangerous criminal. More than 15 years have passed since she was escorted to a federal prison, but Anna has yet to express remorse for betraying her country. She's scheduled for release in 2023. As for what Anna will do with her freedom, only time and very close observation will tell. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Megan Dane, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Just a reminder that we'll be back with a new episode on January 8th. In the meantime, we'll be playing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful holiday season. 